History happened everywhere. Out of office. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating. Uncover the unexpected and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Anna to my King of Siam. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Getting to know you, getting, getting to, to know, know all about you. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's you, Ryan. Now, Ryan and I are away right now. We are enjoying ourselves in ways you can only do in international waters right now. But we didn't want you to go without your dose of history happened everywhere. So we've made you this special short but sweet out of office episode. So, Ryan, what are we going to talk about today? You're absolutely right, Peter. We have have in advance and we have been given the unenviable challenge of traditions and folklore in Thailand during 1910 to 1920. So we're going to go and meet the controversial king who decided that Thai traditions needed to change. And we're going to meet the self-taught folklorist who saved traditional Thai stories from ever being forgotten. Welcome to the land of the free, the land of smiles. Welcome to Thailand. Well, that's good stuff, Ryan. I'm very much looking forward to learning. Now, we're splitting duties on this episode today, and you're going to orient us, I believe. So why don't you tell us where we are? Yeah, I sure will. And I'm going to start with the name. So officially, it's called the Kingdom of Thailand. But in Thai, it's known as Prathet Thai, meaning Land of the Free. Thailand is located in the heart of Southeast Asia, which means if you're looking at a map, you're going to want to find China, head south until you find Thailand, which is sort of nestled in a big group hug with Myanmar, Laos and Cambodia. At around 513,000 square kilometres, or 198,000 square miles, Thailand is approximately 0.93 times the size of France. So very almost to France. Ah, I thought you were going to say 0.93% and I was going to be blown away, but uh, no, that's actually... (laughs) much more sense. But unlike France, it is best known for its tropical beaches, ancient ruins, ornate temples and vibrant street life. Thailand is home to around 69 million people, as well as roughly housing 40 million tourists every year. I've been one of those tourists. Yeah, well, good for you. The official language is Thai, Buddhism is the religion, and the national animal is the elephant. The flag has horizontal stripes of red, white and blue, and I'm going to imagine you want to hear the national anthem, Pete. Sure do, right? Okay, it sounds a little something like this. Oh, it's bold, isn't it? Yeah, it's Marshall. Yeah! Now, this song is known as Fleng Chat Thai, which means National Anthem of Thailand. That makes sense. There you go. That's the <laughs> National Anthem. Nine times, that was, I'll call that Classic Anthem. I liked it. I think it was good. Thailand facts! Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so question for you, Pete. You've been there, but tell me, what is Thailand's capital city called? Is it Bangkok? It is indeed Bangkok. But you might also call it Bang Mukok, which is where it comes from. The Thai words Bang, meaning a village on the bank of a river, and Mukok, which is a type of tree that produces like a yellow plum-like fruit. That is devastatingly apposite. (laughs) (laughs) I should say no more. 
<laughs> but here's the thing, Pete. If you're Thai, you probably don't call it Bangkok or Bangkok. You probably call it Krumtep Mohonakon. That is normally what I call it, funnily enough. Which means City of Angels. Oh, really? Yeah. But it doesn't stop there. The full ceremonial name for Bangkok is... Krungthep Mahanakon Amon Ratanakosin Mahintal Rayotuya Mahadilokpop Nopfarat Ratchatani Burirom Yudom Ratchanawet Mahasathan Amon Pithan Awitan Sithat Saka Thatia Witsanukamprasit. I feel like the Guild of Road Sign Makers had something to do with calling it that. They get paid by the letter. <laughs> it is literally one of the longest place names in the world. And what does it mean? Is it something like what a lovely place where I bang my cock on by the river bank I, I don't know but I'm going to go with that that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> All right, Peter, there you go. We now know the long, 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 long name for Bangkok. Now tell me some history. Well, I'll tell you the long, 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 long history of Bangkok. How about that? That'd be great. We start with someone I can only describe as even earlier man. In a place called Lampang, northern Thailand, some fossils of Homo erectus, known as Lampang Man, date back somewhere between 1 million and 500,000 years ago. Super early man. That is the earliest man I can think of, really, to be honest with you. I think Homo erectus is one of the earliest man-like creatures there was. Wow, that's amazing. Did they catch the worm? The, the, it was the pre-evolutionary worm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, so let's fast forward to the Bronze Age. Uh, a place called Ban Chang in northeast Thailand was a centre of copper and bronze production around 2000 years BCE. After that, probably the earliest kingdoms we can really identify are the Buddhist Mon Kingdom and the Hindu-Buddhist Khmer Kingdoms. These are covering the region rather than specifically Thailand, as normally happens. But then gradually a group of people migrate into the area from southwest China, and these people are called Thai people. That's T-A-I, normally spelt. Oh, really? Okay. They come from China. Uh, yeah, southwest China, they think. So in mm. 1238, the Sukhothai Kingdom was formed. This was an independent Thai state, kind of in the central Thailand area, which is arguably the beginnings of a recognisable Thailand, I suppose you could say. So in southwest Thailand, the Ayutthaya Kingdom developed. Uh, this is often considered the precursor of modern Thailand. And they did pretty well for about 500 years, up to 1767, when they had about 200 years of war with the Burmese and the Burmese finally beat them uh, in 1767, which was the end of the Ayutthaya Kingdom. Oh, wow. But they bounced back really quickly. The fragmented bits of the area were pulled together into a new state known as Siam, uh, and that was put together by a leader called Taksin. Taksin was doing a lovely job until apparently he went a little bit mad and there was a coup. Taksin was overthrown and executed by a new man who took the helm in 1782. And this chap was called Rama I, the first king of the Chakri dynasty. Now, the Chakri dynasty are still on the throne today. No way. Wow. Okay. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So the sequels were Rama II, Rama III, the new kings. Uh, then Rama IV <laughs> and Rama V. They oversaw a period of fraternising with Europe and modernisation. Although obviously not so modern to let anyone not called Rama have a go. <laughs> Rama IV was actually the king from Anna and the King of Siam, or aka the King and I. Uh, and Rama V was the child to whom Anna was the governess. No way. Okay. That's kind of cool. So although during this period, what Thailand did was very much friendly with the West, open to contact, open to modernisation, that's arguably one of the reasons they were never actually colonised by a European state. Although another of the reasons was it acted as a buffer between areas that were controlled by the French and the British. So they were kind of, I think both sides were happy to keep it reasonably neutral. 
In 1910, a new king came to the throne. Would you like to have a guess as to the name of that king? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I know the name of this king. Is it King Rama the Sixth? It certainly is, Ryan. <laughs> uh, now, in 1932, though, there was a Siamese revolution, which was a bloodless coup that saw the country transition from an absolute kingdom to a constitutional monarchy. But really, it was a military dictatorship. So partly to emphasise this change, in 1939, they changed the name from Siam to Thailand. Thailand, as we know it today. Uh, is that when it happened? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So so the constitutional period has seen a number of coups. There were military governments. It's not the constitutional democracy you might have hoped for. It's uh, lots of ups and downs. In 1973, there was a student uprising that was intended to advance democracy in the nation. But that again led to more ups and downs. And the country is currently on, I think it's 20th version of the constitution since 1932. So uh, things <laughs> wow. are a little bit wobbly and have been for quite a long time. Wow, that's a lot of change. I, yeah, it was. It is very much an all-change kind of affair. So today, FreedomHouse.org says, "quote Following five years of military dictatorship, Thailand transitioned to a military-dominated, semi-elected government in 2019, and they score it five out of 40 for political rights and 24 out of 60 for civil liberties. So, a bit of a mixed bag of a country in terms of freedom and democracy. But who knows what the future holds? Although I am willing to bet a good amount of money on another new constitution and a king called Rama. Yeah, that's a Amazing. How about that? Boom. History laid upon you. I love it. It's good stuff, isn't it? So that's history, Ryan. Why don't you introduce the topics for today? Okay, so the topic, Pete, is tradition and folklore. But we're going to split that into two parts, right? I'm going to take tradition. And I'm going to take folklore. So, okay, let's talk about tradition. What, what is a tradition? Well, traditions are deep-rooted practices, customs, beliefs, rituals, things that have been passed down through generations of people. They can be mundane, things like not resting your elbow on the table while you're eating. Or they can be festive, like exchanging gifts during Christmas or other special occasions. Some traditions could be distinct to a specific culture, uh, while others might be universally recognised, like lighting candles on a birthday cake. Ooh. Pretty much everyone would recognise that tradition. I do. Yeah, especially when you've got as many candles as you've got, Pete. Fire hazard. <laughs> and so, by the dawn of the 20th century, Thailand is brimming with such customs. Traditions steeped in a rich history which spans back thousands of years. There are practices like the Ghost Festival of Laoi Province, which is is a vibrant celebration which honours the departed. Locals get dressed up in ghost masks and costumes and they parade around. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it does sound like fun. Yeah, it's spooky. Another was Sak Yant. Uh, now, this is the intricate art of tattooing, a specific type of tattooing to Thailand, which is believed to bestow you protection and good fortune. <laughs> I'd like both protection and good fortune, please, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Start inking immediately. <laughs> Give me your arm and I will start inking you straight away. <laughs> But yes, even in death in Thailand, tradition held sway. They had things called water funerals, which is like a ritual where the deceased is set afloat on a raft and then set adrift to wander down the river towards their final journey. That's how I'd like to go, just drift off. Unless you lived in the village further down the river and you just keep getting these dead bodies <laughs> oh, washing up. Corpse coming through. <laughs> But look, this plethora of Thailand traditions faced a significant challenge in the 1910s, spearheaded by one pivotal figure, a newly enthroned king called, can you guess, 
Is it Rama? It is Rama, Rama the Sixth. So Rama the Sixth introduced a series of progressive reforms and policies pretty much immediately after he took the throne, and it propelled the nation into a wave of westernization. And as a result, many of the entrenched cultural, educational, and social traditions started to vanish. So who was King Rama the Sixth, Pete? Who was this guy? Well, he had a name, and his name was Wajirawad, and he was born on January 1st, 1881. Now, this was a future king who had an upbringing in Western education. He was sent to England to study law and history at the University of Oxford, and after which he travelled extensively throughout Europe and Japan and the United States. Now, all of this travel and all of his education in England exposed him to a culture that he wasn't familiar with, right? He didn't grow up in a Western culture, so this was all new to him and fascinating. And upon returning to Siam in 1901, he only had seven short years to wait until he ascended the throne in October of 1910. Now, as the new ruler, he promptly marked his reign with some bold and sweeping changes. So, dissatisfied with things like the education system, he introduced compulsory schooling for children aged 7 to 14. Boo! Yeah, you can imagine they were <laughs> pleased with that. And uh, he also established a university, a university called Chulalongkorn, which is the country's first university, and it's still going to today. Day. The next big change he made was to introduce the Gregorian calendar, which we use in the West, and uh, that replaced the traditional Buddhist lunar calendar. So a big change there. People were like, what year am I? What day is it? How old am I now? Like, am I younger? Have I got younger? That's all I need to know. <laughs> yeah, it, healthcare he changed. He challenged the um, heavy reliance on traditional medicine, all the herbs and things that people were using, implementing, in quotes, conventional or Western medicine. Uh, he commissioned Western-style hospitals, he mandated a universal smallpox vaccination, and he laid the foundation for the Thai Red Cross. But societal norms weren't spared either. He continued on from there. He legally prohibited polygamy, so no more marrying lots of people, and endorsed monogamy instead. What a spoil sport. School and no more polygamy. He also mandated the adoption of surnames. This was a move away from where they had been, which is to give a child only a forename. So you'd have just been Pete. That's pretty rich coming from the guy who was called Rama like everyone before him. Surely more first names would have done the job. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't make sure that everybody had a number as their surname. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, fashion, the arts, they all fell under his reformist gaze too. He insisted that Western-style clothing become the norm. That meant men wearing suits, women sporting long skirts and uh, wearing fringed haircuts. I'm, I'm OK with the fringed haircuts. That's an acceptable reform. Could have been worse, couldn't it? Could have been like mullets or something. <laughs> mullets for all. <laughs> uh, yeah, but his cultural influence permeated everything, including Thai literature and theatre. And he did this by penning 50 original plays under various pseudonyms. Yeah, you'd read the reviews and go, the King's play is excellent. And you'd, a little bit of you would be like, did you really think that? <laughs> um, but yeah, aside from his own plays, he also adapted 100 plays from English and French dramatists, including much of Shakespeare's folio. Guy didn't hang about, did he? He was writing all the time by the sounds of it. Um, however, 
not all of his reforms found favour. In fact, this relentless altering of traditions incited a frustration and an alienation among the people. His uh, reforms were perceived as undermining the traditional society, particularly when he legislated changes to gambling houses and opium dens. Oh man, not my opium. I, I get very agitated if I don't have my opium. Yeah, you, you're not going to want to ban that overnight, are you? So you got to ease that one out, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in fact, his policies were so contentious that in 1912, some military and navy officers got together and they planned a revolt. It was unsuccessful and the attempted coup did result in them having long prison sentences, but it did show the king the depth of the discontent. But you can't deny the 1910s became a defining decade for Thailand and it made a profound shift in the way that its traditional landscape changed. And all of that is due to the vigorous and rather controversial efforts of King Rama VI. Well, you had that right. Vigorous is the word. This guy was uh, prodigious. Prodigious indeed. My goodness, to have uh, half that effort. He really had some ideas when he came to the throne, didn't he? He'd given it a lot of thought. Well, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear that, Ryan, because uh, I'm going to tell you a tale after the break of someone who's almost the opposite of this guy. Oh, I like the idea of hearing about the opposite. Someone who installs old traditions? <laughs> Nearly. Let's find out. All right, Peter. So we are on to folklore. What is a folklore? Is it a law written for folk? <laughs> no, it's L-O-R-E, not L-A-W for starters. And a dictionary definition will tell you something like the traditional stories, beliefs and customs of a group of people. So it covers a lot of ground, really. Traditions and folklore are very intimately linked. Folklore, is, I would say, is the kind of the stories that make traditions what they are, I think, because the tradition might be to put candles on a cake, but the folklore is kind of the stories of why we do that. Blowing out of the candles brings you luck or whatever it might be. So for me, I think folklore is really about the stories that are the communal self-knowledge and self-description. A little bit of history, a little bit of myth, a little bit of tradition, a little bit of superstition, if you will. But all brought together for me under the title of stories. Is there a difference between folklore and folk tales? I think folk tales are specifically stories, whereas folklore covers a wider remit. So it might be folklore that this amulet will protect you, the law being right. the story about the amulet, the tradition being the wearing of the amulet. But a folk tale would generally be a story with a beginning, middle and end, I think. That's very clear. Thank you, Peter. So regarding folklore, the chap I'm going to talk to you about, who, as I say, is kind of the opposite of your reforming king. He was born in uh, 1888 on December the 14th, and he is called Yong Satyan Koset. But everyone and everything in Thailand has many names, I think we've discovered. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He also has a noble title, which is Fiar Anuman Rajadon. He also has a pen name, Satyrakosis. Call him anyone you like. And sounds like a dinosaur. <laughs> the Rajadon. Yes, well, he graduated college. He was a very smart chap in 1905. Uh, he went to work in the Department of Customs, where he became the Deputy Director General in 1922, uh, which was all well and good. But what he was really notable for was he was a very keen, self-taught academic. He was a linguist, he was an anthropologist, and he was an ethnographer. And the reason I say he is the opposite to your reforming king is because mm-hmm. he used his skills to study and document the traditional beliefs and folklore of the Thai people. So he was preserving all those things that uh, arguably the king was trying to move away from. I love it. Okay, great. So in in reality, practically speaking, he was probably the first person to actually document folk beliefs in Thailand. Uh, And under this pen name he had, Ceterokosis, he wrote a bunch of books, including one called Ritual in Old Siam uh, and one called Essays on Thai Folklore Life, which was quite convenient for me researching Thai folklore. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I found essays on Thai folklore online and uh, I thought, oh, we can talk about something in the podcast. And uh, in the book, I found the following quote. The problem I had was this was published way after the 1910s. But within the book, Essays on Thai Folklore, it told me in 1914, the former Royal Institute, which is now the Fine Arts Department, appointed a committee of experts to select the best works of Thai literature from each of the various styles of composition in the Thai language. So basically, smack bang in our period, 1914, some examples Examples of typical and notable Thai literature were selected. And I'm going to tell you one of them. Uh, yay, I love stories. Okay, this is the story of Fra Lo, or King Lo. I've seen it spelled L-A-W and L-O, so some Lo kind of pronunciation. Okay. So Fra Lo, I'm going to call him Fra Lo, and I'm going to tell it as it's largely recounted in the book Essays on Thai Folklore, but I've supplemented it with... Uh, it's, it's a work of literature. It's documented from like the 1600s, I think it is. It's a book, but it's a book that came from stories before that, so it's definitely qualifies under the folklore heading. Great. So, he says, Fra Law is a romantic story dealing with the king of a small country in the north of Thailand. He was young and very handsome. <laughs> so, apparently songs and tales of Fra Law's fantastic jawline and big soulful eyes reached the ears of two princesses in a neighbouring kingdom called Song. Nice. The two princesses both fall in love with the man, or at least the way the man's very effective PR operation is describing him. Now, the problem is, Fra Law's father had killed one of the earlier kings of the neighbouring country of Song, who was in power before the princess's father. So not the princess's father, but it didn't say grandfather, but the king who was before the princess's father. So that left a widow in the kingdom of Song who was pretty annoyed and not massively keen on Fra Law, but the princesses seemed fine with it. So they decide to use some magic to lure Fra Law into their country. So they enlist the help of Ku Chow, who's described in Rajadon's book as the genie of the forest. But elsewhere I've seen him called a Rishi, which is kind of an enlightened spirit in the form of a were-tiger. A were-tiger? A were-tiger. So whatever this Rishi were-tiger genie might be, he casts his spell and Fra Law feels a strange and urgent need to visit the neighbouring kingdom. Now, Rajadon doesn't mention this, but uh, in some of the other uh, tellings I saw, it does. There's kind of a magical battle because Fra Law's mother enlists her own magical forces to defend him against this uh, alluring spell. But in the end, Fra Law makes his journey. He cannot resist, in part, according to Rajadon, because he was, quote, lured by a magic cock. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's a quote, lured by a magic cock. I'm, I'm imagining a cockerel. I, I'm, since, I'm sincerely hoping it's a magic cockerel. <laughs> so, eventually Fralor finds himself and two of his assistants or uh, associates, friends, companions in the neighbouring country. Quote, Fralor and the two princesses met and made love clandestinely in the garden. Yeah, boy. Yeah, Rajadon adds. <laughs> the two faithful attendants also met their loves in the persons of the two trusted maids, maids of the princesses. So that is one sexy park. Everyone's having a go. <laughs> <laughs> now, tragically, the woman whose husband was killed, the widow, by Fralor's father, finds out about these antics and she sees a chance for her revenge. She sends a bunch of soldiers to murder Fralor. No! A great battle begins, but Law does not have to fight alone. By his side are the two princesses loyal to the last the fight is heroic but sadly inevitably fra law and the princesses are all killed no way everyone's murdered as are the loyal servants it's like the red wedding and game of thrones 
It certainly is, because revenge was not sweet for the widow either. The princess's father, the King of Song, discovers the tragedy and he is enraged. Rajadon kind of skips over this, but again in the other versions I've seen, he captures and flays and executes the widow, so she dies as well. Flaying is not great, is That's it? That's pretty grim. This is really Game of Thronesy. So, Fralor and the princesses and their loyal servants were cremated with full royal honours. Kind of a sorry for murdering you, I guess. The envoy is sent to Fralor's kingdom to say, ooh, sorry about murdering your boy, uh, to offer reconciliation. <laughs> with Law's mother who she does consider revenge but she accepts this she sends envoys and gifts as a gesture of reconciliation thus the two neighbouring kingdoms come to be allies a sign of hope birthed from the ashes of tragedy wow everyone who wasn't already dead lived happily ever after yeah, and even those that died, they had a pretty good moment before they died. Yeah, it was a pretty grim a grim time for all concerned. But uh, yeah, that is the story of Fra Law. And that comes from uh, essays on Thai folklore from our man Rajadon. And he himself has quite a good ending because uh, he is... Uh, well-known. He's got a Wikipedia entry, which is the sign of success as far as I'm concerned. And UNESCO staged a commemoration of the man and his work on the centenary of his birth in 1988. Ah, good old Rajadon. So there you have it. A little tidbit on folklore in the 1910s. I like that because I can imagine, as King Rama VI is instituting all of these big changes, you can imagine a number of people running around trying to retain as much as possible before that gets removed as well. Yeah, that was quite a nice battle. I had no idea you were going to bring that King stuff. So that was really a nice little two-part uh, perspective on the, the country during the 1910s. Hey, teamwork. Yay! Accidental teamwork, albeit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have come to the end of the journey, Peter, and there is no desolation this week. No, this isn't out of office. But we will return with a full episode very shortly, everyone. So uh, hang on in there for communism in Antarctica during the Triassic, heading your way soon. But in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show or just to say hello, you can totally do that by reaching out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And if you're on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. Yeah, subscribe to those. You'll get an alert every time we post extra content, pictures, facts we didn't use, photos from the show and anything else we can think of. That's right. But we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thank you, Ryan. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say now is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. So no sketches at all for this one? Um, let's assume not, and if we get one, brilliant. Brilliant.